many of you know that Brother Josh Jones works with our teenagers and our youth group. He also is a UPS truck driver, and with the Thanksgiving now past us, he is in his very, very busy season where he works many, many hours every day. And so uh, the past couple years, Pastor Bill has uh, determined to go into the youth and minister to the youth while Brother Josh is unable to be here on Wednesdays. So that means uh, for the month of December, you'll have me. And so Master Club may be looking for workers if you want to head out to Master Club. (laughs) I won't be offended too much. (laughs) Yes, amen. Thank you, Marvin. (laughs) Well, I'm going to continue in the study that Pastor Bill has been doing in the book of Acts, at least for the first couple of messages as we get closer to Christmas. I may make a shift there, but uh, open your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 2. Tonight we're going to look at some passages that are, that are very familiar to us, dealing with conviction and conversion. And so let's read these verses beginning in verse 37. We're going to read down through verse 41, and that's what we intend to cover this evening. The Bible says, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter, And to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Let's pray. Father, meet with us tonight. Lord, this is a familiar passage. Many of us in here have read probably hundreds of times, if not more. And so, Lord, when things are are so familiar to us, it's easy to overlook the the depth, the, the profound nature of what it is that is being shared here. And so, Lord, open our eyes afresh and anew to this. Speak to us through your word. Lord, uh, if there's anything that you would have me not say that maybe I'd planned on saying tonight, you would guide my lips in that area as well as put other thoughts into my mind that you would have be shared this evening. Father, we do love you. Pray for our teenagers that Pastor Bill's ministering to, to our Master Club children that our Master Club workers are diligently working with, to our nursery, uh, Lord, our lobby usher, I mean, everyone, Father, that's serving or learning in some capacity this, this evening, uh, Lord, may you bless them, may we leave here different than when we arrived, uh, growing more and more in our likeness to Christ. Father, we love you, we ask your blessing upon this time, in Christ's name we do pray, amen. Um, verse 37 says, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. I want you to think back to maybe the time that you first came under intense, powerful conviction of the Holy Ghost. Maybe it was the moments right before when you got saved, or maybe you fought that for quite some time. But I want you to think back to that situation. For many of us, it could have been years ago. In my case, 40 yeah, I'm trying to do the math in my head. 46 years? 
Yeah, 46 years ago, 47 years ago almost. Boy, I am getting old. <laughs> but I was, uh, and many of you heard my testimony, but I, I was sitting in a church service in Columbus, Ohio. It was a revival service on a summer night. And I had been drugged to church by my mom ever since I was a little child. And when I say drug, I mean, she would have to often find me in the neighborhood and and I would kind of go kicking and screaming, maybe not literally, but I wasn't all that excited to be there. But there are certain things that, uh, about going to church I did enjoy. But in the summertime, you know, that was, that was my time. I didn't really want to go to church. But my mom had taken me that night, and the, the preacher preached a message where he was sharing the, uh, the truth of, of God's law. And uh, I'm not sure if he was preaching in the Ten Commandments, but he was referring to the Ten Commandments about, you know, things like thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain or honor thy mother and thy father and, and um, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, all these sort of things. And I went into that night thinking that I was a good boy. I was 11 years old thinking I was a good boy. And uh, in my mind, I was a good boy. I compared myself to all these others that weren't as good. Uh, I remembered kids getting in trouble in school, and, and it looked like a lot of fun, but I didn't want to do what they were doing because I was a good boy, and I didn't want to get in trouble. And so as he began preaching that evening, for whatever reason, maybe it was the first time I, I really paid attention Maybe it was the first time I felt like the Holy Spirit sat down beside me in the pew. And every time he said something like, thou shalt not bear false witness, um, thou shalt not lie, I, my, my knee-jerk reaction was, Man, I, don't, I, don't, I don't do that, I'm a good boy. And this is how I always envisioned my mind. It's like the Holy Spirit would kind of jab me in the side and say, remember the time. Remember the time uh, your mom asked you who took the last lunch cake out of the refrigerator. That was for our lunches. And, and I would say, it wasn't me. You know, you need to talk to my sister, Debbie, when it was me. I mean, over and over, I would do things like that. Or um, thou shalt not steal. I remember getting into my mom's purse and taking money. And every time the preacher would say something like that, and my, my response was, I'm, I'm a good boy, I'm, I'm okay, the Holy Spirit would remind me otherwise. In fact, that shall not steal, again, you've heard me say this, I remember going into Rank's department store, which is about a mile from where I grew up, seeing something I wanted in the toy shelf, and um, leaving the store and making a plan to go back and get what I wanted, not, not to buy what I wanted, but to steal what I wanted. And I remember breaking into this little uh, package through the cellophane and grabbing the thing that I wanted out of it, kind of wrestling it free, and then taking a dime out of my pocket and leaving it on the shelf there. I knew it was wrong to do that, but it was still something I wanted. I couldn't afford the whole thing, which was a number of dollars. I mean, things like, uh, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord that God in vain. And, and I remember my mom called me into the living room one day and said, you know, the neighbor moms have said they've been hearing you use some language that a boy, little boy shouldn't be using. And I remember looking at my mom and saying, mom, it's not like I take the Lord's name in vain that often. And I saw the look of terror in her face. And all that came back to me that night. And for the first time, I think, ever, I got under conviction. I realized I wasn't a good boy. In fact, I was in trouble. 
uh, as, as the preacher shared that night, I, I heard that for someone who would die in their sins, they would, they would slip into an eternal hell and be in hell forever. And so I had myself so convinced I was a good boy, but that night I finally realized that I wasn't good. In fact, I was nowhere near good. That's, it's crazy how your mind can kind of convince you otherwise, especially when you compare laterally others. We can always find someone that is worse than we are, does, commits more sin than we do. But that night I was reminded I was a, a liar, a thief, uh, dishonoring to my parents, taking the Lord's name in vain. I remember telling my, again, came back tonight, telling my sister that I hated her at times and meaning it. And uh, I just over and over again, I realized I was nowhere near good. And the Holy Spirit, as he was bringing those thoughts to my mind, that evening reminded me that I was a sinner and that I was in trouble. Now, I'm thankful that night that that preacher, Harry Rader was his name. I'm not sure if he's still alive or not. He was, he was uh, the pastor that started the church that we were attending at that time. Um, he went on to preach the gospel. And so having been under conviction, and almost, and I probably didn't use these words, but almost like we see here in Acts 2, where the, those men who were pricked in their heart cried out and said, what shall we do? And that was the idea. What, what on earth am I to do in this, this situation? Well, he went on to preach the gospel. He shared what Christ did on the cross, how he went to the cross and willingly shed his blood and and went there because he loved me, and he, he realized I was a sinner, and my sin debt needed to be paid, and so he gave himself to pay for my sin. And it all kind of made sense that he knew for the first time as an 11-year-old boy. So when the invitation came, and I went forward and, and told Brother Harry, I need to be saved. I'm in trouble. I'm not sure if those are the exact words I used, but that was certainly my heart. I knew I was under conviction, and I was in trouble, and I needed to be saved. And I heard what he said uh, what Jesus did for me. So it became kind of a, a no-brainer. Yes, Lord, save me of my sin. And so I, as I was reading through this again, that those, those memories flooded back to my mind so many years ago where I think for the first time I was finally pricked in the heart to the point where it did something. That conviction caused me to say, Lord, what should I do? And then I responded to the gospel. I know it's a Wednesday night. Things are a little more formal. Anybody have a time, a quick testimony of when you truly were under conviction? Maybe it was the time right before your salvation, but when you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, maybe for the first time that you were pricked in the heart and something had to be done. So you, in essence, cried out, what shall I do? What shall we do? Anybody have a quick testimony? Something like that? Jimmy? Mm, amen. That's good. Anybody else? Joan. 
Good. I'm thankful for that. I mean, I'm thankful that he continues to challenge us and to get us to think and to process and to ensure that uh, our salvation really is true. And, uh, yeah, that's a great minute. Anybody else? A time when you're really convicted. Yes, Becky. It's good. Patrick Thayer. That's good. Very good. I know I've shared in Sunday school, I can't remember if I did that here recently, but you know, many of you saw Tyler last week. I think Tyler was here. I'm trying to remember briefly. Yeah, he was here. I can't remember if it was him or Corey. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's been a long week already. But uh, you know, Tyler grew up in this church. He was born in this church and uh, made a profession of faith in this church. And many of you taught him in Sunday school or you know, Master Club or whatever we had before Master Club Pathfinders, I think, or Awana. And um, went off into the Air Force and uh, moved around a little bit, was in Oklahoma City, and joined a church in Oklahoma City uh, that was pastored by a friend of mine. In fact, I had pointed him to that church because I knew the pastor there who had been in Texas with Mark Thrift and moved up to Oklahoma City. And um, Tyler was out with that pastor knocking on doors, standing on someone's doorstep and hearing the pastor present the gospel. And the Spirit of God said, here you are uh, um, sharing the gospel with people and you're not even saved yourself. He had gone through the motions here as a, as a, as a kid. He'd been in Christian school and he came under conviction right there on someone's doorstep ministering for the Lord. And when he got back, the, that was on a Saturday he told the pastor, so I, I realized, and the Lord had been working on his heart for some time about this, but he said, I, I'm not saved. I need to get saved. So Tyler called me that Sunday afternoon, and he said you, he was not sure if I'd be ashamed of that or embarrassed. 
And he said, you, you're not going to believe this, but I got saved today. And uh, there was not one bit of shame. There was not one bit of, I rejoiced that he got that settled. And uh, it's always been a fear, not just of my kids, but all kids that are born and raised in church. They learn all of the things to say and how to act and how to dress. And they can go through the motions and miss it. And uh, so I, I rejoiced in that. But he got under conviction. He was pricked in the heart. And what shall I do? And he took that next step and just said, I know what I need to do. I need to trust Christ truly as my Savior. So that's kind of the, the context of what's going on here. Pastor Bill has been in Acts 2 for a while. And I just wanted to look at a couple of verses real quick there. Um, as we started in, in uh, verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. So what had they heard? Well, in verse 14... Uh, after, the, after the day of Pentecost, that, that uh, the Holy Spirit came down upon those that met in that upper room. Verse 14 says, Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all of you that dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known unto you and hearken to my words. So now Peter is preaching this message. He, message. he is no longer the fearful, you know, hiding in the dark denier of Christ. He is filled with the Spirit and he is boldly proclaiming the gospel message. Verse 21, it says, and it, came to, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 22, you men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Verse 32, this Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being uh, by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. In verse 36, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they had heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. So you see the boldness of Peter, and, and very boldly confronting that you crucified. Uh, he's, he's preaching to the Jews here. And so you have done this, you are guilty of this. And so the Holy Spirit was at work in their hearts. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. And said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? So that word prick there means to convict, to sting, to sense pain, to sense hurt. And it's an emotional movement in the heart of a person who senses great sorrow over disappointing God. Again, that's, that's where I was that night. I thought I was so good, yet I had disappointed God over and over and over again by breaking all of his commandments. So in verse 37, the enormity of their sin and guilt uh, come home to rest in their hearts. If you think about it, conviction is the first work of the Holy Ghost in the heart of a human being. He convicts of sin, he convicts of righteousness and of judgment to come. We see that in John 16, verse 8, of the nature of sin, of the need for righteousness, of the nearness of judgment. There is a wrath to come. And again, that truth settled on my heart that, that night so long ago that I knew I was in trouble. And if I were to pass away before I got a chance to 
ask the Lord as my Savior that I would slip into an eternal hell. And so he makes people see their personal accountability before God for the wrong that they have done, the sins that they have committed, and particularly their rejection of Jesus Christ. They become desperate about their lost condition, and they're broken by it. Again, do you remember when you were there? Have you ever been there? That's a convicting question in and of itself. If someone's here tonight and has never responded to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Well, while that sting and that conviction is certainly not fun, it is necessary. The Jews that were present on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached this message that they were so overwhelmed by uh, all the things that they had done, they had crucified the Lord of glory. They had murdered their Messiah. They had spat in the very face of the glorious Son of God. And they wanted to know what they could do to be rescued from the guilt and from the shame that they had felt. And so thankfully, God doesn't leave us there. Peter didn't leave them there. When they cried out, said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Let's look at verse 38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remissions of sin, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. What shall we do? Repent and be baptized. Boy, there's so much in this one simple verse 38 here. Repentance is a change of mind. It's a deliberate turning away from a previous course of conduct. It's a change of heart inwardly, first and foremost, that is ultimately displayed outwardly. There's a noticeable change of behavior. People say there's just something different about that person. And you've probably... I mean, we've all experienced that, even in our own lives, but in the lives of others. That, uh, and, and maybe it's a coworker that you didn't know if they had gotten saved, and you just see something dramatically different in the way they carry themselves, the way they act, the way they talk. And so, repent. Repentance is so critical in the life of a believer or the life of someone coming to Christ as Savior. Baptism is an outward sign that a person has repented, that they have changed. It's a public sign that they're identifying with Christ, that they were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, as it says there. And so, can I tell you what really matters is what happens on the inside? And I say that because, again, we may have experienced this with others. People come to our church. A person can repent. They can change their life. They can go through the waters of baptism behind me there. And they can do it all of their own effort and never truly receive Christ as their Savior. Again, that's kind of Tyler's example. I don't think he was trying to trick us. He just kind of fell into that routine and wanted to do what he knew would please his parents, uh, trust Christ as a Savior, and try to live a good moral life. But when it came down to relationship, he realized that it wasn't there, that he was just going through the motions. But when someone comes to Christ in true faith, in an honest belief, that always means that that person repents and they're baptized. Again, I would say as long as they're able to be baptized. Obviously, the thief on the cross was not able to be baptized because he trusted Christ while he was being put to death. And there are others, uh, you know, there are others that that get saved on their deathbed that uh, didn't have an opportunity to be baptized. But someone that comes in true faith and honest believe means that they do repent 
And they do follow the Lord in baptism. And so to believe, to believe is to follow Christ in obedience to his commands, which, again, baptism is a command for us to follow. And the world will certainly take notice of a difference in that person's life. So Peter says, repent and be baptized. And for these Jews that heard the message that day, and for us, this would be a step of public, public acknowledgement of the fact that they were accepting Christ as their Savior from their sin. And think about it, from the Jews, this was a giant step forward for those that were there that day. Up to this point, the Jewish nation had to look to animal sacrifices that had taken place that very day in the temple. That's what they were looking forward to, to, to give them remission of their sin, and it had to be done over and over again. And so uh, Peter was proclaiming an end to all of that with what happened with Christ, his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection from the dead, and getting victory over death and victory over sin. So Jesus was now the sacrificial lamb. God, in, in grace beyond our ability to even understand or comprehend, had taken the crime that was Calvary and turned it into a, a means for taking away our sins. The remission or the forgiveness of sins. To sin, that means to send off, to send away. Uh, so this biblical concept of forgiveness is so important for us. What does it entail? Well, first off, we have the idea of a once and for all forgiveness of sins, a total forgiveness. A man is forgiven once and for all when he receives Christ as his Savior. While it's hard for us to completely comprehend this idea, when we come to Christ and we accept that free gift of salvation, we're born again into the family of God, we acknowledge our sin, we ask the Lord to forgive us, he forgives us of all past sin, all present sin, and all future sin. That's hard for us to understand that concept, but it's true. So a, 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 biblical concept, a biblical concept of forgiveness entails this idea of a once and for all forgiveness. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. I'll eventually get there. Ephesians 1 and verse 7, it says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. And then Matthew chapter 26. In verse 28. These are words of Jesus says, For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So this idea of this once and for all forgiveness. And then there's this idea of forgiveness that maintains fellowship. Fellowship exists between God the Father and the believer as his child. Before we were saved, God dealt with us only as judge. And again, that's why he convicts of judgment and uh, sin, because if, if we... Uh, enter into his presence, never having our, have our sin dealt with, then that judgment will come. There's a wrath to come for those who never turn away from their sin. But for the believer, when we get saved, he no longer deals with us as judge. He deals with us as father. And so when we sin, even today or yesterday or tomorrow, that sin interrupts fellowship with our father. And so we need to come to him in, in confession 
and asking him to forgive us for that restoration of fellowship to be put back in place where it should be. And I I always look at it this way. I know this isn't necessarily a biblical um, concept. I mean, you can't find it explained this way in the Bible. That's the way I've always thought about it. The Holy Spirit of God has taken a permanent residence in my life. And one of his primary ministries in my life and your life is to mold us into the image of his son. So every day he guides us through this process, which biblically we call sanctification. It's a process of slowly but surely changing us to become more and more like Christ. And we never arrive at that point of being like Christ until we breathe our last breath and we leave this earth and shed this flesh that we still have and enter into the presence of God where the Bible says we'll be like him. But all throughout this life we work to be, he works in us and we submit ourselves to him to change us into the image of his son. But there's times when I fall short of that. And there's times even when the Holy Spirit who is present in my life is, sees it ahead of time and he says, Steve, don't say that. Don't do that. Don't go there. Don't think that. That's wrong. And he's trying to get me to change. And many times when I'm walking in the Spirit, I say, Lord, you're right. I don't want to do that. But there are other times when I fall short and I give in to, to some sinful thought or I say something I know was wrong. I know it grieved the Spirit and sinned against other people in the process. And in my mind, I, I get the picture of the Holy Spirit going in the back room of my life and closing the door. He's not left. He's not left my vessel. He's still there. But I've relegated him to the back room, which means he's not front and center. He's not in control. He, his voice is quieter in my life because he's in the back room. And when I come to him and say, Lord, that was wrong. That, I shouldn't have said that. That was sin. Lord, with your help, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to think that way anymore. Please continue to change me. Will you forgive me? And when I ask for that forgiveness, his word says he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he comes out of the back room and he's front and center again on the throne of my life, uh, working in my life, guiding, leading, changing, controlling. And so this forgiveness that maintains fellowship, we all need that. Every one of us as believers need that every single day. And then there's this idea of releasing from guilt as part of forgiveness. Look at um, Romans 8.1. I love this verse. Romans 8.1. The Bible says, there is, therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. How much condemnation is left for believers to go through? None. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. So the guilt, these Jews, as they heard that message, they were guilty. When I heard the Harry Raider preached that message, and I realized I was guilty of breaking God's law, and, and the weight of his judgment was weighing heavy upon me. But when I was born again and my sin was forgiven, that guilt was removed. The Bible, again, another Bible term, imputation, the righteousness of Christ was imputed to my account. So when God looks at me, he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. He doesn't see all of my sin, past, present, or future. He sees Christ. Not because I deserved it, but because of his grace. And so this idea of releasing us from guilt. And it's important for us to understand this because we have an enemy that wants to make sure we never forget all the the wrong that we've done. In fact, we may do something tomorrow that we know grieves the spirit. And the devil will be right there saying, what kind of Christian are you? A good Christian wouldn't do that. Um... Your God's never going to forgive you. 
And so he's going to want to, even if for sin that we've confessed and repented of and received forgiveness of, he will still come after us and try to get us to paralyze, paralyze us with guilt. And again, that, that is not, when we, when we have a biblical concept of forgiveness, that is not according to what God's word says. That is the enemy trying to lead us astray. It's a, it's a lie and it needs to be brought captive. Guilt has its place in our lives. When we sin, we feel guilty. We respond to that guilt, we confess it, we repent of it, we ask for forgiveness, and then it's gone. If guilt remains, it's false guilt that the enemy is trying to discourage us, to lead us astray, to minimize our ability to serve the Lord and to accomplish things for his glory. So that's when it talks about forgiveness. So they're to repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, for the forgiveness of sins. And then it says, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The gift of the Holy Spirit. Boy, this is an inalienable gift for believers. That's a big word, but it means something that cannot be taken away or denied. If, if we have been born again into the family of God, if we have been saved, we have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us. It is God's gift to us. And uh, it happens to every believer. It's the birthright into the family of God. All true believers have the gift of the Holy Spirit residing in them. In fact, look at Romans 8, 9, if you're still there in, in Romans. I've got to get back there myself. Romans 8 and verse 9, the Bible says, um, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And so if someone isn't indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, then it's an indication that they've never been born again. But if you've been truly born again, then the Holy Spirit of God will reside in you. And so let me illustrate, I guess, this idea of the gift of the Holy Spirit this way. I was trying to remember this today in talking with Chris. Uh, when Chris and I got married almost 35 years ago in Van Wert, Ohio, uh, I received an amazing gift, the gift of my wife, Chris. In fact, I've often said the greatest gift God ever gave me, apart from salvation, was the gift of Chris. Uh, She was a gift that came to live alongside of me, to share my life, for her to share her life with me, for me to share my life with her. And when the pastor, and this is what I was trying to remember today, what was the pastor's name that married us? His name was Robert Linter in Van Wert, Ohio. When he asked Chris's parents, who gives this woman to be married to this man? Her parents responded with, we do. And then Pastor Linter said to me, will you take Chris to be your lawfully wedded wife? And I said, I will. And on that day, I received the amazing gift of Chris as my wife. And so the Holy Spirit is a real person, third person of the Trinity, of the Godhead. When I became a Christian, I received the gift of this person into my life. I could not become a Christian without receiving that gift any more than I could become a married man without receiving the gift of my wife. And so when I got married, thankfully, I did not receive my wife in installments. I didn't get an arm and then a leg and later, you know, her beautiful face. Similarly, we cannot receive the gift of the Holy Spirit in installments. It's wrong for us to ask God uh, to give us more of his spirit If we're truly saved, we already have the Holy Spirit in his totality. 
I guess where we get mixed up in that sometimes is that some, sometimes the reality is while we receive all of him, he doesn't receive all of us. Or we don't give him all of us. We hold something back. So when I got married, I really didn't know all that I was receiving when Chris became my wife. And the truth is we really, at the time of salvation, we really don't know all that we're receiving when we receive uh, the Holy Spirit into our lives. Uh, it's tough. I mean, you learn a lot of things as you partner up with somebody in life. And so marriage is largely the working out of that new relationship into everyday life. Adjustments have to be made. And lives are forever changed because of that. For the better, I might add. It's the same with the Holy Spirit. Nobody at the moment of conversion can possibly understand know all that's involved and what it means to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit as he takes up permanent residence in our lives. The Christian life is is a process of finding out day by day the vast dimensions of such a life. It's learning, it's sharing, growing experiences the Holy Spirit indwells us and leads us and guides us. We learn to submit to that leadership, to his guidance, to his control. We learn that what grieves the Spirit and causes him pain We learn what causes that fellowship to be broken when we sin and causes our growth to seemingly stall out for a period of time until it's dealt with. We learn what pleases him and how he changes us day by day, step by step, into the glorious image of Christ. So the glorious gift of the Spirit means so much to us as believers. And because of that, I just wanted to take a quick walk through and tour some of the truths about the nature of the Spirit by the names that he's referred to, refamiliarizing ourselves with his glorious, holy character from what God's Word says. So let's look at a number of these here. John 14 and verse 17. John 14 and verse 17. Here we see the Spirit of truth. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you. And shall be in you. Boy, what a great verse that is. We have the spirit of truth, therefore we ought not be deceived. We ought not be deceived. Secondly, Second Corinthians chapter four. Second Corinthians chapter four and verse thirteen. We have the spirit of faith. We have the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed, and therefore have I spoken, ye also believe, and therefore speak. So because we have the spirit of faith, we ought not be discouraged, but we ought, rather we ought to be bold, actively speaking forth the truth of the gospel. Another aspect of his character, we have the spirit of grace. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse Hebrews 10 and verse 29, the Bible says, Oh, how much, um, make sure I'm in the right place here. 10, 29. Oh, I'm in 11. That's why. <laughs> Sorry. 10 and verse 29. How much, oh, how much sore punishment suppose ye shall be thought worthy who have trodden under the foot of the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith you're sanctified 
an unholy thing and hath done and hath done despite unto the spirit of grace. So the Holy Spirit that indwells us, that resides inside of us, is the spirit of grace. Therefore, we ought not be disgruntled. Uh, Romans chapter 1 and verse 4. We see here the spirit of holiness. Verse 4. And he declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So because we have the Holy Spirit and the spirit of holiness within us, therefore we ought not be defiled, but be powerful. The power of his resurrection, I think of. Uh, Ephesians 1.17, we have the spirit of wisdom. Well, we looked at that verse earlier, but let's go back to it. Ephesians 1.17. Bible says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give, you, give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. And so again, praise the Lord for all the wisdom that he guides us through as he leads us and he speaks to us and guides us through that. So because we have the spirit of wisdom residing in us, therefore we ought not be daunted, but be confident that God gives wisdom and knowledge to live a life that's pleasing and honoring unto him. Another familiar verse, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7. The Bible says, for God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So here we see the spirit of power. Uh, Therefore, we ought not be defeated. The spirit of love. Therefore, we ought not be disagreeing or quarrelsome with each other, but rather one who shows grace and mercy to our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the the sound mind he gives. So therefore, we ought not be disturbed. Uh, Romans 8, 2, we see the spirit of life. Romans 8, verse 2 says, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. So because of the spirit of life, we have that residing in us. Therefore, we ought not be in bondage to anything any longer, certainly not sin and death. And finally, the spirit of glory, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 14. It's important to look at these because oftentimes we, we get in the habit of trying to define God's character by what we think of God. We say something like, to me, God is like, well, it doesn't matter what we think God is like. What matters is what the word of God says he is like. So when we look at the character of the Holy Spirit, we need to see what the word of God says about his character. So that's what I've been trying to lead us through here. This evening, First Peter four and verse fourteen says, "If we approach, if if we if ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. And so, because we have the spirit of glory, we should not be sad, gloomy, overcome by reproach, but rather joyful. What a challenge that is! So, all ten of those characteristics that we just looked at here." are characteristics of the Holy Spirit. They're also characteristics that Jesus demonstrated in his humanity as he walked on this earth. Uh, He was never deceived, never discouraged, never daunted, never disturbed. He always manifested grace and wisdom and power and love. 
And so the gift of the Holy Spirit that resides in each one of us as believers makes it possible to live this supernatural life. It makes it possible to live out the things of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. We don't have to be controlled by our flesh. We don't have to give in to that as a way of life. In fact, we can rise above that and live victoriously. And so hopefully, as we look inward, we see those things coming out. Did you see those things coming out of you today? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, etc. The Holy Spirit, with our cooperation, lives that life in us and through us. Back to Acts chapter 2. Let's look at verse 39. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that be afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So he's, he's told these people that have come under great conviction that they need to repent and um, they need to be baptized for the remission of their sins, the forgiveness of their sins, and to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And he says, for the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So the promise is to you, it says. Think about this. And, you know, I thought about this kind of afresh and anew as I was going through this passage this past week. Many of the people that were there when Peter preached this message on the day of Pentecost were probably the same people in the crowd that cried, crucify him, give us Barabbas. The blood of, our, uh, of him will be on our children. And um, now they heard this convicting message that Peter preached. And Peter's saying, this promise is unto you, the forgiveness of sin, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And um, if you'll respond by faith and trust Christ as your Savior, repent and be baptized, again, what a promise. Those who had turned their backs on, on the Lord were responsible for his crucifixion. Again, Peter said that ye crucified. Peter says the promise is to you. In spite of me thinking I was a good boy, Realizing I was a very rotten boy, a very sinful boy, God said the promise is for you, Steve. Will you accept my free gift of salvation? Not only that, Peter says the promise is for your children. Again, even though some of them may have cried a few weeks earlier, his blood be on us and on our children, Matthew twenty-seven twenty-five. Jesus said this gift is for them too, if they'll come to me by faith, put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And he says, in all that are far off, Peter's message was not just uh, to be confined to the Hebrew people. It was for every Jew, but it was also for every Gentile as well. All that are far off. No, the promise is to even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Again, what a final statement on the matter that Peter preaches here. The Lord our God. A clear and unmistakable claim of the absolute deity of Jesus Christ. The one who they had crucified. Their Messiah. Peter says, the Lord, our God. And so his call was going out. It went out first to the Jews, then to the Samaritans, and in time to all the world. And it's went out to us, many of us in this room. 
And if you don't know the Lord as your Savior, the call is going out to you as well this evening. The promise, the promise is unto you. What a great promise. Verse 40, and with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. So that word untoward is not a common word that we use in our vernacular today. It means corrupt, crooked, bent out of shape. Men are far from being straight and in the shape that God originally designed us to be in. We are crooked and we are bent, unrighteous, ungodly, sinful, corrupt. Again, those words sound harsh, but those words words describe me as an 11-year-old boy. But God, and only God, can change them. I love 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Look at this uh, verse real quick. Talking about the power of God to change those who are bent and corrupt and crooked and untoward. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Boy, what a list. And such were some of you. Boy, I love that. Such were some of you. But you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You're not who you once were. You've been changed. What a glorious truth that is. Judgment is coming. Less than 40 years after Peter preached this message, Jerusalem would be overtaken. The temple would be burned, destroyed. The Jews would be dispersed. And even beyond that, the great white throne awaits those. That judgment awaits those who still relate to God as judge and not as father. And um, he says, save yourselves. Save yourselves. Well, how are we to do that? I thought salvation was all of God and none of us. Well, the message that Peter is saying here is save yourselves by coming to the Savior. Realize your inability to do this on your own, but come to Jesus Christ as your only way to be made right with God. So come to the Savior. And as Peter Peter preached, and as he shared many other words, testifying and exhorting, the people needed to act on exactly what he preached by repenting and being baptized. And then verse 41 says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Peter's sermon brought forth immediate results. There was a mighty moving of the Holy Spirit in the crowd that day. Not everyone responded in faith. Notice it says, And they that gladly received his word implying some didn't receive it. Some heard it, some walked away, rejected it, rejected Christ, would not humble themselves to admit their need for a Savior, and they walked away lost. But those that did respond in faith gladly received his word. They confessed, they repented, they trusted in Jesus Christ alone to save them from their sins, and they were immediately baptized that day. It was a bold step to be baptized publicly in the name of Jesus Christ. Again, think about the recent events that had just transpired in Jerusalem. 
Most of the Jews, it meant persecution. It meant being cut off from family, from friends, being denied access into the temple, the synagogue, into Jewish society as a whole. The price was high. And can I tell you, the price remains high in our world today, including right here in our country. But can I also say, while it's a bold and brave step, it's one that you never make alone. We've looked at it already tonight. For your Savior, the Holy Spirit, will be right there beside you, each step of the way, guiding you, giving you comfort, giving you peace, giving you wisdom, giving you joy. Just be faithful and trust in him. I know it had to be fearful for some of them when they counted the cost of what it meant to follow Christ, what they would be end up having to, to give up or the price they would have to pay. And that's where we come back to simply taking God at his word and trusting him, trusting the promise that he had given us that we looked here, finding other promises in his word. Psalm 56, verse 3 and 4 says, When I'm afraid, I will trust in thee. In God will I praise his word. In God have I put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. And so we proclaim a verse like that by faith, and we move forward. They that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. What a blessing. A few applications, and then we'll spend some time in prayer this evening. The first one, respond immediately to the Spirit's conviction. Respond immediately to the Spirit's conviction. Consistently ask him, what shall I do? Just like the Jews that heard that message that evening when they were realizing they were sinners in need of a Savior, they asked, what they should do. As believers, it will be unlikely that a day goes by that we don't have some impure thought that's not pleasing to the Lord, that is sinful, that needs to be confessed and repented of, and forgiveness sought from the Lord to restore fellowship. And so consistently respond, immediately respond to the Lord's conviction. Don't put it off. Don't hope it'll go away. Just say, Lord, you're right. I know that's not pleasing to you, and I want my life to please you more than anything. Everything that I say, everything that I think, let the words of my mouth, meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So respond immediately to the Spirit's conviction. Number two, embrace the Holy Spirit's presence in your life. Embrace his presence in your life. Give more of yourself to him if there's some area you're holding back. Uh, Walk with him. Be filled with him. Again, you think of all the verses that we could go to about walking in the Spirit. You shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Uh, be filled with the Spirit. Uh, what should overflow out of us as believers should be love, joy, peace, etc. Um, do you believe the Spirit can guide you? Do you believe the Spirit can lead you? Do you believe that He can give you wisdom to give you words to say when you don't know what to say, when you feel all alone, that you can sense His presence right there with you? Uh, again, embrace the reality of the Holy Spirit's presence in your life. What an amazing gift! that God has given us through his presence. We are never alone. And oftentimes we we fail to give the Holy Spirit his due in recognizing all the great blessing that we have because of who he is and how much he loves us. He's got a great ministry. His ministry is to help make us more like Christ. And so we listen to his leadership. We listen to that still small voice. We respond to it and we don't reject it. 
we don't relegate him to the back room where his voice gets fainter and we keep doing what we want to do. We put him back front and center where he belongs, where he can be in control and make the changes in our lives that he's trying to make. Lastly, embrace and model biblical forgiveness. Embrace and model biblical forgiveness. Restore fellowship quickly with the Spirit when we sin and fall short and with others. Uh, We're a family. We'll look at that next week. uh, Some of the blessings as this infant church, as they begin to live out their newfound faith, the unity that is expected there. And so when something becomes, comes between us as brothers and sisters in Christ, and it will, we deal with it quickly. We don't let it linger. We don't say, well, they need to come to me first because they're the one that's in the wrong. No, we take the initiative, embrace biblical forgiveness. Don't allow the enemy to cripple you with guilt for the sin that the Spirit of God has already forgiven. And he'll want to do that. He'll want to bring up things in the past to try and get us to uh, remember those things and, and uh, lessen our impact for Christ. But whom God has forgiven, he has forgiven. He's covered it. He chooses not to remember it any longer. Removes it as far as the east is from the west. Puts it in the depths of the sea. That's how we are to forgive. And um, so we need to embrace that idea. Embrace the promise of forgiveness. I didn't speak about that tonight, but uh, many of you have heard me speak about that in the past. When we say, I forgive you, we make a promise. Again, I just made reference to it in the things that the Lord promised to do to us when he forgives our sin. He chooses not to remember it against us any longer. So we don't bring up a forgiven sin and talk to somebody else about it. We don't um, bring it up to that person that we've forgiven and say, yeah, but remember when you did this? And we don't bring it up to ourselves. Uh, We remind ourselves that, no, that's been covered. I chose to forgive that sin. So we need to practice that model of forgiveness and the promise that goes along with that. And there are very practical ways we, especially when it comes to our mind, where we change our thinking to some, something else and not focus on that. Because if you dwell on it, it's just going to continue to take you down that road. So respond immediately to the Spirit's conviction. Embrace the Holy Spirit's presence in your life and embrace and model biblical forgiveness. Again, so much here in these few verses that we looked at this evening in Acts chapter 2. Next week, we'll pick up from here and look at this early church, the infant church, and how these newfound believers Again, some 3,000 were added to the church that day, began to live out their faith in Christ. So let me look here. I've got 813. I'm going to skip over my discussion questions and we'll move right into prayer. So I'll uh, give you guys a break there from making you talk more. Amen. Prayer sheets. All right. Uh, a few things that I heard today. Brother Ron Robles had his eyes uh, cataract surgery today, his eyes operated on. That went well, and he's home resting. So pray for a quick and complete uh, recovery there as well. Uh, we had heard on um, Sunday that Tina Dillinger had fallen here at church. Fortunately, no bones were broken, but in pain and in, in a, a sprain. So pray for her recovery, that that would be quick as well. Uh, and she had, or uh, Cheryl had a couple.